Well, saints, again, the general subject of this time together is maintaining a healthy Christian life and a healthy church life. And uh, one thing I would like to do, we, we spoke, Proverbs 4.18, and I would like to read this again to you and read you the footnote. I forgot to read the footnote to you, which is quite illuminating. It says, the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Our path shouldn't be like sunset, right? Our path should be full of the freshness of the Lord's presence, which is the light of the light of dawn. You know, Psalm 22, the tune to Psalm 22 is the hind of the hind of the dawn, the hind of the dawn, which means uh, this typifies Christ in resurrection. Christ in resurrection is like a leaping, jumping, active deer. He leaps over all obstacles. He jumps over all barriers. It's wonderful. He is the hind of the dawn. And our path should be like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until the full day. Now listen to the footnote. It says, the light of dawn, the sunrise, signifies Christ and his coming. This figure may also signify our being revived every morning. The Christian life is like the dawning of the sun. And it has some uh, references here. One of them is Judges 5.31. It says, may those who love him be like the sun when it rises in its might. That's Judges 5.31. Matthew 13.43 says that in the millennial kingdom... The righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Then it says this, as Christians we should follow the sun to be revived and to have a new beginning every morning. Saints, isn't it wonderful? We can have a new beginning every morning. You know, Brother Howard Agashi, who's with the Lord, he told me this, that uh, uh, there's this other brother they were both in Elton Hall. Samuel Chang was an older brother. He was an elder in Elton Hall in Los Angeles. And one brother came to Samuel Chang. Um, maybe it was in the evening, after the evening meeting. And he said, uh, he said, Brother Samuel, I'm having a really hard day. I'm having a really hard time. He said, don't worry, brother. Just go to bed and you can have a new beginning in the morning. Yeah. <laughs> So we can have 365 new beginnings every year. Listen to this. Then we should continue to rise and shine brighter and brighter until the full day. Now listen to this last sentence. In the Christian life, there should be no afternoons. Here we are in the afternoon, right? But spiritually speaking... In the Christian life, there should be no afternoons. We are people of today. We are people of the morning, of the morning. So um, I think that footnote is very, very precious. Now, in the first session, we saw that we need to cleave to the healthy teaching of God's eternal economy and live in the divine dispensing of God in Christ into our being. 
And then uh, the process and means by which God accomplishes his economy is God's dispensing. God's dispensing is for God's economy. Now we need to rem- remember, uh, because we are the today people, because we are enjoying the now Christ, quote, quote, the now Christ. We are the now people. He is the great I am. He is the present tense. We need God to dispense himself into us in this meeting. So we need to pray, Lord, I'd like to open my whole being to you. I want your fresh dispensing, Lord. I want you to gain more of me. I want to gain more of you. Uh, Saints, uh, this is just something I'd like to share with you. Maybe it's in the way of advertisement. Uh, In the Memorial Day conference, I'll tell you what the Memorial Day conference is about. (laughs) The Memorial Day conference, let me take a drink of water first, (laughs) will be titled The Experience of Christ. The Experience of Christ. And Brother Lee gave some messages titled The Experience of Christ. I believe it was in 1978. And he gave most of these messages in the Boston area. And if you buy that book and read those messages, they are very particular. Uh, He shares things in there that he hasn't shared in any other books. You know, even though we have the experience of life, we have lots of books on Experience, but this book, The Experience of Christ, is very particular. So we pick that up for our title, and we, we use that, we use the book, and we also use that as a template to develop, uh, to develop this matter from even bringing in other parts of our brother's ministry. Well, uh, this is all from the book of Philippians, The Experience of Christ. Philippians is a book on the experience of Christ to keep us in a healthy condition. And, you know, if we're going to be in a healthy condition, I would just like to mention this. In Philippians 3.8, Paul said, I count everything to be lost on account of the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord. The fact that he says, my Lord, shows his intimacy with the Lord. The excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, on account of whom I've suffered the loss of all things, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. You can translate the word gain there as win, that I may win Christ and be found in him. So in this meeting, Christ is our prize. We want to win Christ and be found in Christ. Now, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ is, a, is by revelation, is by revelation. In Philippians 3.10, Paul says to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. That's by experience. Firstly, we need the revelation, the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Then we need the experience, and that's why Paul said to know him. So Paul, uh, according to very good expositors, Uh, that the ministry used. Philippians was written approximately 26 years after Paul's conversion. 
Now, after 26 years of him being converted, him being in the church life, his pursuing Christ, gaining Christ, he was not a contented Christian. He was not a contented Christian. He didn't have the attitude, oh, I know that, I've been there, I've done that. Uh, His life was a quest to know Christ. So he said, to know him. And that's how we should be. I want to know you, Lord. Yes, I've received you, but I am not finished on my quest to know you for the building up of the body of Christ. We want to know him. Now, uh, this is really something. There's a distinction uh, between the experience of Christ and the enjoyment of Christ. And the enjoyment of Christ. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. We need to experience Christ with enjoyment. With enjoyment. But it's possible for us to experience Christ and not enjoy Christ. And not enjoy Christ. Now, what do I mean by this? I'll give an illustration. Uh, you know, my one of my sons, he didn't like broccoli. Broccoli was, he didn't like to eat broccoli when he was a little boy. Even I think President Bush didn't like broccoli, right? I think he choked on it. He said, no more broccoli, right? Uh, anyway, uh, my little boy, he was little then. He's not little now. He's as tall as me now. But when he was little, he didn't like broccoli. But we would try, try to say, well, I'll just tell you who he is. He's not here, so I can use his name. Uh, I said, we say, Aaron, you have to eat your broccoli. You have to eat your broccoli. And he would just, he would, he would put that broccoli in his mouth, and he would experience the broccoli, but he wouldn't enjoy the broccoli. <laughs> he wouldn't enjoy the broccoli. And then come to find out, we didn't know he was doing this, but he would, when we weren't looking, the microwave was right, like right here. He would go like this, then he put the broccoli behind the microwave. And then he'd go like, he put another piece of broccoli behind the microwave. Well, one day we looked behind the microwave, and the, it was all this broccoli with fungus on it. And you could have made penicillin. <laughs> Out of that broccoli behind the microwave. Uh, so it's possible to experience Christ and not enjoy Christ. We need to experience Christ with the enjoyment of Christ, with the enjoyment of Christ. Now, the experience of Christ is mainly in our spirit. The enjoyment of Christ is mainly in our soul, our mind, will, and emotion. So we want, by the exercise of our spirit, we want the spirit to saturate our soul, to be dispensed into our mind, will, and emotion. So in Philippians, I believe it's Philippians 2.5, he said, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. That's the mind. In Philippians 1.8, he said, I long after you all in the inward parts of Christ Jesus. That means the inward parts of Christ Jesus were Paul's inward parts. That's the emotions. Christ's emotions were dispensed into Paul's emotions. And then you have the will in Philippians 2.13 where Paul says, the Lord says through Paul, 
It is God who operates in you, both the willing and the working, for his good pleasure. So, in, in, uh, isn't it wonderful, saints? Sometimes we might not be willing, we might not be willing to do certain things or to follow the Lord absolutely, but we can say, God, operate in me the willing for your good pleasure. Operate in me the working for your good pleasure. So in these three portions of the word, you have the mind of Christ, the emotions of Christ, and the will of Christ. So the enjoyment of Christ, experience of Christ is mainly in our spirit. The enjoyment of Christ is mainly in our soul. So in Philippians 1.27, um, Paul talks about our fellowship under the gospel, that we have a corporate fellowship under the furtherance of the gospel. And, and to have that corporate fellowship under the furtherance of the gospel, uh, of course, the Philippians fellowship with Paul uh, through their material offerings. Their material offerings supplied Paul so that he could spread the gospel you know, to the known world at that time. So that was a fellowship under the gospel. And our fellowship under the gospel can be through our praying, it can be through our giving, and it can be through our going. Praying, giving, and going. That's a fellowship, communication, under the furtherance of the gospel. And then Paul says in Philippians 1.27, he said, you need to stand firm in one spirit with one soul, striving together along with the faith of the gospel. So we don't, just, we don't just need to be in one spirit. We need to be with one soul, with one soul. And uh, that's where the one accord is. It's in one spirit with one soul, with one soul, where we have no opinion about things. Uh, we drop our opinions. We drop our concepts. And we have the same soul. Now, in Philippians 2.2, 2, Paul tells the Philippians, he says, make my joy full that you think the same thing. And then he says, joined in soul, joined in soul. He wanted the Philippians to be joined together in their soul. And then he said, thinking the one thing. Now, what is the one thing we need to think here? The one thing, according to the context, is a subjective knowledge and experience of Christ for our enjoyment to build up the church. That is the one thing. So we subjectively know and experience Christ with the enjoyment of Christ for the building up of the church as the body of Christ. That is the one thing that we need to think. And if you look at the book of Philippians, Paul was in prison when he wrote this book. But Philippians is a book of joy and rejoicing. It's amazing. You look up the word joy, rejoice, rejoicing. You can see it frequently throughout the book of Philippians. Isn't it amazing? He was in prison. All of us have our circumstances, uh, but none of us are in prison, right? But Paul was in prison. And um, what would we write? to a group of believers if we were in prison. You know, we might say, send us, send me a cake with a file in it. 
so I could file the bars and get out of here or something like that, right? But Paul didn't do that. In, uh, in Philippians 3.1, he told the saints in Philippi to rejoice in the Lord. And then he said, to, he said, for me to say this to you is not irksome to me, but for you it is safe. In other words, the word irksome means tedious, tedious. In other words, for me to repeatedly tell you to rejoice in the Lord is not a tedious thing to you, but for you it is safe. So to rejoice in the Lord is a safeguard to us. It's a safeguard to us. It is so good, saints, that we can say praise the Lord. Let's say praise the Lord together. Praise the Lord. It is so, praise the Lord. The enemy hates to hear us praise the Lord, right? And so in Philippians 4.1, Paul says, he tell, charges the Philippians again. He says, rejoice in the Lord. He could have stopped there, rejoice in the Lord, period. But he didn't. He said, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. So we need to build up a habit of saying praise the Lord in our daily life. Saying, Lord Jesus, I love you. Saying praise the Lord. Praise you, Lord Jesus. Not just in our meeting life, but in our daily life, which is for our meeting life. And so we experience the Lord with enjoyment. With enjoyment. All right, now we, let's come to the outline. This is the inoculation against the decline of the church. And this is the, this is the subject of the book of 2 Timothy. Inoculation against the decline of the church. This was Paul's last letter, last recorded letter that he wrote. It's very, very significant what he says in this book to Timothy. Uh, it's very, very significant. This was the last recorded letter he wrote. So we really need to pay attention to what he wrote in this book. Now in Roman number one, we have the song that we sang. The song that we sang, God's Eternal Economy. It's a marvelous definition. It says, according to the desire of his heart, God's eternal economy is to dispense himself. Now when we use the word economy... Maybe for those of you who are new, we're not talking about dollars and cents. We're not talking about that kind of economy. We're talking about God dispensing the unsearchable riches of Christ into our being, into our mind, will, and emotion, and eventually into our body so that we become his fullness for his expression and his glory in this universe. This is God's economy. So God's eternal economy is to dispense himself. What is God dispensing? He's dispensing himself. A person is being dispensed into us. It's to dispense himself into man and make man the same as he is. In life and nature, but not in the Godhead. And to make himself one with man and man one with him thus to be enlarged and expanded in his expression that all his divine attributes 
may be expressed in human virtues. Now we have these verses here that we've been begotten of God, to be children of God. 1 John 3, 1 and 2 says, Behold what manner of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and we are. Isn't that good news? We are the children of God. And then verse 2 says, But beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been manifested what we will be. We know that if he is manifested, we will be like him, because we will see him even as he is. Then if you come to 2 Peter 1.4, it tells us that we are partakers of the divine nature. On the one hand, we have God's life. On the other hand, we have God's nature. We are partakers of the divine nature. Our partaker here in the, uh, in the original language means to partake of for enjoyment. To partake of for enjoyment. So God has granted to us precious and exceedingly great promises that through these you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption which is in the world by lust. So the more you partake of the divine nature, the more you escape the corruption in the world which is by lust. The more you escape the corruption in the world which is by lust, the more you partake of the divine nature. This is a cycle. Now, um, this, this is a, a simple question I'm going to ask, but maybe none of us have ever considered this before. What if someone were to ask you, what is the divine nature? What is the divine nature? Uh, well, we'd like to define that. Uh, I don't know what the nature of this is. Is this wood? Okay, it's wood. So the nature of this stand is wood. What is the divine nature? What is the divine nature? You know, uh, one time I was in a meeting. There were at least this many saints in the meeting. And Brother Lee was in the meeting, and he, he asked me, he had me stand up, and he, said, he asked me a question about the divine nature, what the divine nature is and how we partake of the divine nature. I tried to answer it. He said, no, no, Ed, that's not it. That's not it. Try again. Try again. So I just stood there. I couldn't say anything. And I stood there. It seemed like it was only for probably a minute, but it seemed like 15 minutes. And I was standing there, and, and uh, you know, there's 2,000 people there. And he said, okay, you can sit down. You can sit down, brother Ed. I just went, oh, Lord, maybe I need to migrate to Alaska. You know, uh, but as I was walking him back to his apartment, he said, Ed, I want you to consider this, what the divine nature is. So I studied all that afternoon, you know, studied the ministry. And very simply speaking, the divine nature is what God is. The divine nature is what God is. Now, in the Bible, there are three portions that tell us what God is, what God is. John 4.24 says, God is spirit. So spirit is the nature of God's person, the nature of God's person. God is spirit. How do we enjoy, partake of the divine nature, the nature of God's person? 
we worship him in our spirit and in truthfulness and in truthfulness. So in order for us to partake of the nature of God's person, which is spirit, God is spirit, we have to exercise our spirit to touch God, to substantiate God, uh, and to know God inwardly. And then uh, not only do we worship him in or with our spirit, we worship him in truthfulness, in truthfulness. Truthfulness is the divine reality becoming our genuineness and sincerity for the true worship of God. So that's the first item of what God is. Now the second item of what God is is in 1 John 4, 8, and 16. And that is this. God is love. God is love. So, um, and the, the subject of 1 John is the fellowship of the divine life. And the fellowship there, when we use the word fellowship, what we mean is the flow of the divine life. When the divine life is flowing within us, that is the fellowship of the divine life. When we are in that flow, when we are enjoying the flow of the divine life, then we can enjoy God as love. God as love. You know, there's one chapter, we have a book called The Vital Groups, and there's one chapter in there that is a classic. It's just two words. Love prevails. Love prevails. And uh, at the end of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul says, uh, I will show you a most excellent way. And the most excellent way is in chapter 13, which is love, which is love. Love is the most excellent way to do anything, to be anything in the church life for the fulfillment of God's economy. Love is the most excellent way. Um, When we care for people, when we care for one another, love should prevail. Love should prevail. The church is like a home, a hospital, and a school. Uh, If you have a home and you don't have love there, that's not a good home. If you have have children there, Maybe your house isn't so neat. You know, I'm a very neat person. But then we had all our children. I gave up. I just gave up. I said, this is chaos. You know what I mean? This is chaos. So I needed to live Christ in the midst of chaos, right? And, and love my children, right? So the church is a home. The church is a hospital. Because all of us, All of us are sick. We might not be sick physically, but we're sick spiritually and psychologically. So the Lord said, I I did not come to call the righteous, but I came to call sinners unto repentance. Then he says, go and learn what this means. You have to learn something. What this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Nowadays, humanly speaking, uh, we go to doctors, and most doctors, there's no love there. Right? They just write you out a prescription and see you later. You know, if, if, if you know Rick Scatterday in uh, 
he's in Anaheim. He's a doctor. He's a brother. He's full-time. Uh, and then we have uh, Brother Edward here, here in London, you know. If you go to them for some treatment, you will receive divine love. That's wonderful. And if, if all the physicians love their patients, what a difference that will make in the hospitals and in all the doctor's offices, right? Well, the church is a hospital to heal us of our spiritual sicknesses, so we need to love one another with the divine love. Then the church is a school, and school is a place where we learn things. Well, in the church life, it's a school in the sense, we'll see in a little bit, that we learn Christ. We learn Christ. We just, we don't learn, we don't merely learn about Christ. We learn Christ experientially, subjectively, and according to Revelation. We learn Christ. Now, I don't know about you, now I'm coming back to human illustration, but I can remember all my elementary school teachers. I can, I can tell you their names. Uh, I don't know if you can do that, uh, but I remember all of them. I remember the ones who loved me, and I remember the ones who did not love me. <laughs> but my first grade teacher, she really loved me. She was a believer. And I don't know why she loved me. She just did. She just did. Uh, one time in one of the ministry books, this is in one of the ministry books, uh, the question is posed, why does, why does God love us? Why does God love us? You know what the answer is? He loves us without reason. He loves us without reason because we've been chosen by him before the foundation of the world. Well, this first grade teacher, when my dad went to be with the Lord at his, at his uh, funeral, uh, she came. And I was shocked that she was still alive. And she looked at me. I looked at her. And she said, Eddie. You know, I was Eddie to her, you know. And when she said Eddie, I almost shrunk down the first grade size, you know. I said, Mrs. Anderson, Mrs. Anderson, it's so good to see you. You know, it was just uh, a love there, you know. And I believe she loved me with the love of God. So, if the church is a school, the best way you can learn divine things of the divine economy is if love prevails, as if love prevails. Now, that brings us to A. Oh, no, I'm not done yet with the divine nature. I'm sorry. There's one more point about what God is. 1 John 1, 5 says, God is light. So God is love. That's the nature of God's person. God is spirit. That's the nature of God's person. Uh, God is love. That's the nature of God's essence. And God is light. That's the nature of God's expression, the nature of God's expression. So again, it's by the fellowship of the divine life, which is like the circulation of the divine electricity. Like right now, there's electricity circulating here, circulating here. And because there's a circulation of, the, of electricity, we have light in this room. We have light in this room. Actually, if you don't have the electricity circulating, 
you really don't have electricity, right? Electricity is something that's always in motion. It's always in motion. And so uh, the fellowship of the divine life, which is the triune God in motion in our being, uh, issues in God as light, illuminating our entire being and allowing the light to shine out from us. You know, uh, in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, I didn't plan on sharing all of this anyway. I, just, uh, just because I'm in London. I get inspired when I come to London. You know, Isaiah 60, verse 1, it says, Arise, exclamation point. Shine, exclamation point. Saints, we need to shine. We need to shine. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of Jehovah has risen upon you. Now, of course, this is a verse for the millennial kingdom, but again, it applies to us today as believers. In verse 5 of Isaiah 60, I love this verse. It says, you will see and you will beam. You will beam. So when you see Christ, when you turn your heart to him, you see, you see him, and you beam him. You become a beamer. You know, I used that word beamer one time, and all the young people laughed in the States because beamer is short for BMW. I didn't know that. A beamer is a BMW to them. But I'm not talking about that kind of beamer, right? You will see and you will beam. We need to beam Christ into people. My first meeting in the church in Houston was a prayer meeting. Can you imagine coming to your first meeting and coming to a prayer meeting? I never heard people pray like this in my life. You know, everyone's saying, amen, amen. And then the saints were praying, Lord, scatter us, scatter us. I had my head down. I was trying to enter into the prayer. I said, Lord, why do they want to be scattered? You know, they, they were praying over some portions of the book of Acts where it says the disciples were scattered everywhere and they went to preach the gospel everywhere. So they said, they were praying, Lord, scatter us. And uh, after the prayer was over, because these people to me seem like they're, these people are from another planet. And so I just, the Christ planet. Anyway, uh, I was afraid to look up. But I slowly looked up, and this brother was sitting right across from me, and he beamed Christ into me. I could still see his face to this day. I know his name. Uh, he's with the Lord now. He was just shining, just shining. He beamed Christ into me. And so we need to enjoy God as light, the nature of God's expression. We need to turn our hearts to him to see him and to beam him into others. You know, my earthly father, uh, thank the Lord he got saved toward the end of his life. He's with the Lord now. Uh, I, this is in Houston, I brought him to the brother's house. And Fergus, you know Wynn Boryak, Wynn Boryak's house. And um, I was kind of scared. I said, what are the brothers going to do to my dad? You know what I mean? They're going to pull out their Bible machine gun and, you know, 
I, I didn't know what was going to happen. I was praying, oh, Lord, cover this, cover this situation. Well, the brothers were so Jesusly human with him. They took care of him in such a respectful, honorable way. And, and they displayed Christ to him. And my dad was very, very touched because one of the brothers there played football for Notre Dame. And when, this is when, I don't know if you know, this is American football, okay? You know, with the oblong football. Anyway, at that time, Notre Dame had just won the national championship. And so my dad was there, Ed, did you know he played for Notre Dame? I said, of course, Dad. I know he played for Notre Dame. Well, it, my dad was an unbeliever. When we were leaving, he told my mother, who's a believer, he said, Dorothy, I've never seen people like that. They are shining. An unbeliever. They are shining. I said, wow, they are shining? You know, I was shocked that my dad would say such a thing. Well, we need to be shining people. Now, let's come to A. A says we need to learn Christ as the reality is in Jesus. To learn Christ as the reality is in Jesus. That doesn't say to learn about Christ. It says to learn Christ, which again means we learn him subjectively. Uh, if I, you know, every time I go to New York City, I was just in New York City, um, I have to get a slice of pizza. Because to me, forgive me, I don't know if London has good pizza, but New York to me has the best pizza in the world. But the best pizza in the world is really in Naples, right? <laughs> but anyway, in the United States, New York, in the United States. And so uh, when I go to eat pizza, I don't learn about pizza. I learn pizza. You know, I don't say, oh, what are the molecules in this? And what about the mozzarella cheese uh, and study it, and the tomato sauce? I don't learn about it. I learn it, you know, experientially. And so this is how we need to be with the Lord. Now, one says the reality is in Jesus refers to the actual condition of the life of Jesus as recorded in the four Gospels. Jesus lived a life in which he did everything in God, with God, and for God. God was in his living, and he was one with God. This is what is meant by the reality is in Jesus. Now, the reality that's in Jesus, the Lord wants to duplicate that reality in us. The actual condition of the life of Jesus, as recorded in the four Gospels, needs to be duplicated in us as the members of the body of Christ and as the body of Christ corporately. And so, um, you know, in 1 Peter, I believe it's 2.21, it says... The Lord left us a model, M-O-D-L, that we might follow in his steps. Well, a lot of believers read that, and they, they have this thought that when they're about to do something, they say, now, what would Jesus do in this situation? What would Jesus do? But th that's not what that Greek word model refers to. The Greek word model there refers to an underwriting where where uh, young students in that day, the way they learned how to write, 
was you would have a writing on a piece of paper and you would put that down, put that down on the bottom and then put a piece of paper on top of it. And, and then you could see the letters of the bottom piece of paper through the top piece of paper and then you would trace those letters so that what you wrote is an exact duplication of what was written on the underwriting. So that is what the Lord is doing with us. He's making us Xerox copies of the life of Jesus, of the life of Jesus. He wants to Xerox Jesus into our being so that we become his Xerox copy. Now, two says we learn from him according to his example, not by our natural life, but by him as our life and resurrection. To learn Christ is simply to be molded into the pattern of Christ that is to be conformed to the image of Christ. So in Matthew eleven twenty nine, the Lord says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Then in verse, in verse 30, he says, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, uh, the, fa- the yoke there is the Father's will. The burden there is the father is the, is the work to carry out the Father's will. So the Lord's yoke is easy. His burden is light. If we have a, a, a feeling sometimes, oh, the church life is so difficult. There's so many meetings. There's meetings in Milan, and there's meetings over here, and there's meetings over there. And in London, there's a meeting on this day, then there's a meeting on that day. I I don't know what I'm going to do. Well, you have the wrong yoke on. You have the wrong yoke on if you have that feeling. Because his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. His burden is light. Now, B, look at what B says. This is from 1 John 4, 17. It says, even as he is, so also are we in this world. Isn't that remarkable? Even as he is, so also are we in this world. Now the rest of the sentence says, Christ lived in this world a life of God as love, and he is now our life, that we may live the same life of love in this world and be the same as he is, as he is. We have Isaiah 7, 14, and 15 here. We've shared this before. I would like to mention it again. Verse 14 speaks about the birth of Christ, and it's quoted in the New Testament. It says, Behold, uh, the virgin will conceive and will bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Well, most people don't go to verse 15. Verse 15 is on the human living of Christ. And Watchman Nee has a, I would encourage you to look this up in Watchman Nee's collected works, He has an article in there called The Power of Choosing. The Power of Choosing, which means the power of choosing God's will. And it says concerning Christ, he will eat curds and honey until he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. Now, in the article, The Power of Choosing, uh, Brother Nee says he will eat butter and honey until he knows how to refuse evil and choose good. Butter is another translation. Uh, 
it's not it's it's an alternate translation it comes from Darby's new translation it also comes from the Chinese Union version 1901 I think Fergus is when that was when that was uh, composed excellent version so I'll use that word because brother Nee uses that word he weed butter and honey until he knows how to refuse evil and choose good now what is the good here the good here is the good well-pleasing and perfect will of God. So the power of choosing is the power to choose God's will. You know, it's not easy all the time to choose God's will. Like, like Brother Ron and Julene, I don't know if you, where are you guys now? Thessaloniki. You've been there how long now? Wow. How long? Wow, that's wonderful. Where were you before that? Athens, marvelous. Now, to go to Athens, was it just easy for you, just like that? <laughs> you, have to, you had to have some power to choose God's will, right? Well, that power to choose God's will is butter and honey. Butter and honey. Now, what does butter and honey signify? Butter signifies the richest grace Honey signifies the sweetest love. So the way the Lord Jesus chose God's will is he enjoyed the Father as butter, which is the richest grace, and as honey, which is the sweetest love. That is the power to choose God's will. And so uh, whenever we have to choose God's will, we need some power. We need to choose, we need the richest grace. And we need the sweetest love. Isn't that remarkable? The richest grace and the sweetest love. Uh, there's no, you don't have to worry about cholesterol in the divine and mystical realm. You can eat as much butter as you want. This is a margarine. doesn't say he will eat margarine and honey. No, he will eat butter. He will eat curds, which is the top part of the milk, the richest part of the milk. So this is the richest grace and the sweetest love. Now, C says this, you know, saints, I just pray that, you know, we're going to take these outlines back. Just pray short prayers over these points. Say, Lord Jesus, I want to enjoy you as the richest grace and the sweetest love today. I want to choose your will by enjoying you in such a way. Now, C says, glorify God in your body. The verse before this says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. And what does this mean? It goes on to say, This is to allow God, who dwells in us, to occupy and saturate our body and express himself through our body, as his temple. So we want him to occupy and saturate our soul. We want him to occupy and saturate our body even. And to express himself through our body as his temple. Now D, I really like this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do. Do all to the glory of God. The glory of God is the expression of God. So whatever we do. Whether we eat. Whether we drink. Whatever we do. We want to express God. We want to express God. Now, in Isaiah 43, 7, 
I like Isaiah 43, 7. I don't have this written down here. But God says this. He says that he created us, he formed us, and he made us for his glory. He created us, he formed us, and he made us for his glory. Now, one tells us what the glory of God is. The glory of God is the expression of God, God expressed. God's glory has its riches, which are the many different items that constitute God's divine attributes, such as light, life, power, love, righteousness, and holiness expressed in different degrees, in different degrees. Now, in Ephesians 1.18, in Ephesians 1.17, Paul prays that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation so that the eyes of our heart could be enlightened that we might know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. The riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So his glory, God expressed, contains many riches, many riches of Christ. And God's inheritance is in us. It's in the saints. Now, in verse 11 of Ephesians 1, it says that we are God's designated designated inheritance. What God will inherit is us. He's going to inherit us. And, of course, the riches of Christ are being wrought into us. So he inherits us uh, with those riches of Christ. In verse 14 of Ephesians 1, it says, God is the pledge of our inheritance. He's the pledge of our inheritance. Pledge there means sample, sample. He's the sample of our inheritance. He's the pledge of our inheritance. And that means in this age, we enjoy him as the sample of our inheritance. You know, when, when, a, um, when a mother bakes a cake, she makes a cake, she puts icing on it. Sometimes the little boys, they like to go in, they sneak in, and they just put their finger on the icing, and they take the icing. That's a, that's a pledge, a pledge of the cake, a pledge of the cake. Well, that's what we're enjoying of God. We're enjoying a foretaste of him. And then the millennial kingdom in eternity, we will enjoy the full taste of the triune God. Ephesians 3, 16, and 17, there's a good prayer. It says that the Father would grant us according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit into the inner man that Christ might make his home in our hearts through faith. So we're strengthened according to the riches of his glory. Then in verse 21, it says, To him be glory in the church. So the riches of his glory get into us and become his glory in the church. His glory in the church. So out of the rich treasury of his glory, which are the riches of his glory, wrought into us, unto him be glory in the church. In the church. And a good picture of this is in Genesis 24, where you have Isaac, uh, you have uh, Abraham, you have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Abraham's servant, and you have Rebekah. Abraham signifies God the Father, Isaac signifies God the Son, the servant signifies God the Spirit, and Rebekah signifies the Bride of God the Son. 
the bride of God, the son, the bride of Christ. So the servant was sent on an errand to gain a bride for Isaac. So the servant signifying the spirit means that the spirit in us has been sent on an errand. He's been sent on an errand to beautify us with Christ so that we can become his bride. So this servant, he went to Rebekah's land, and anyway, to make a long story short, you can read Genesis 24 later. Um, he, put, he brought Isaac's wealth, Isaac's wealth, and he put, he put bracelets on her hands, and he, he adorned her, uh, you know, with, uh, with jewelry, with Isaac's riches. And then he brought her back to Isaac. So all those riches, all that wealth of Isaac was put on her for her beautification. Then she returned to Isaac with those riches for his glorification. In the same way, the spirit is in us and he's working in us all the riches of Christ for our beautification so that we can return to Christ for his glorification as his bride. Now, I like Isaac. Isaac just sat. Isaac didn't do anything to get a bride. You know, sometimes our young people are so worried about getting married, right? But Isaac just was in his tent, walked out of his tent, and there was his bride. So, anyway, all you single saints, the Lord will get you a husband and a bride. Just come out of your tent one day. The bride will be there. The bride will be there. The Lord has his way. That's humanly speaking. When I, <laughs> when I met my wife the first time in, in college, she was serving food in the cafeteria. So I went by and, and, um, and got my food. And I said to my roommate, I said, who's that? Why did I say that? Who's that? Something, you know, who's that? And then one time, one of my friends on the team I was playing for, uh, he wanted to go over to the girls' dorm. I didn't have anything to do, so, so uh, I went, he said, Ed, will you come with me? I said, sure, I'll go with you. And I went over there with him, and he wanted to see this particular girl, you know. And um, my wife was her roommate. And on her side of the room, on my wife's side of the room, it was filled with Bibles, Bibles everywhere. I said, wow, who is this person? Who is this person? Her side of the room was very neat, lots of Bibles. Her roommate's side of the room was very wild. Very wild, you know. Uh, but uh, I'm so thankful that my wife and I became friends. And then we eventually uh, came in the church life. And long story, I got saved. She prayed for me to get saved. I got saved. I prayed for her to come in the church life. She came in the church life. And now we're married happily ever after. <laughs> Very wonderful. Okay, now two says, we have been predestined for this glory and called to this glory. Three says, we are being transformed into this glory 
and will be brought into it, and will be brought into it. In Hebrews 2, 10 and 11, it says that the Lord is leading many sons into glory. In this meeting, he's leading us into glory. It says, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. And the, the, are all of one means are all of one father. So the Lord's father is our father. He's our elder brother. Uh, we have the same father, and he's sanctifying us. So all the items of God's organic salvation, we can say, are the process of sanctification, which is not just separation under God, but it's saturation with God. So 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, May the God of peace sanctify you wholly. And I, and I, I pray that God, I pray God that your spirit and soul and body would be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, which means that he will saturate and permeate our spirit, soul, and body until we become exactly the same as he is in life and nature, but not in the Godhead. So you could say there's regenerating sanctification, there's renewing sanctification, there's transforming sanctification, there's conforming sanctification, and there's glorifying sanctification. He's leading us into glory through all these aspects of sanctification. Four says, eventually we will be glorified with Christ and bear the glory of God for God's expression in the new Jerusalem. Now two says, Roman numeral two says, teachings that differ from the unique teaching of God's eternal economy and heresies are the source of the church's decline, degradation, and deterioration. And of course, we, we spoke about that when we quoted 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 4 in the last session. Now, A says this, teaching differently tears down God's building and annuls God's economy. Even a small amount of teaching in a different way destroys the recovery. In 1 Corinthians three seventeen. It says, if anyone destroys the temple of God, the temple of God here is the church. If anyone destroys the temple of God, you can also translate that destroys as ruins, corrupts, defiles, or mars the temple of God. It says, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy, and such are you. So when we build, when we build according to 1 Corinthians 3.12, You can build with two kinds of materials. You can build with gold, silver, and precious stones, or you can build with wood, grass, and stubble. Gold, silver, and precious stones are the triune God. Gold is God the Father and his divine nature. Silver is God the Son and his judicial redemption. And precious stones is God the Spirit and his transforming work. We need to pray that whenever we take care of people, we would we would dispense gold, silver, and precious stones into them. And the next category of building material is wood, grass, and stubble. We don't want any wood, grass, or stubble in our work. Wood signifies the natural man, grass signifies the flesh, and stubble signifies lifelessness, lifelessness. We don't want anything to do with that. Okay, now... Uh, B says to war the good warfare, uh, 
is to war against the different teachings of the dissenters and to carry out God's economy according to the apostles' ministry concerning the gospel of grace and eternal life that the blessed God may be glorified. In 1 Timothy 1.18, he said, This charge I commit to you, my child Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you might war the good warfare. Saints, every time we speak concerning God's economy, there's a, it's a warfare. It's a warfare. And we are warring the good warfare. But we have to realize we're fighting a spiritual warfare. So we have to fight the good fight. We have to war the good warfare by warring against the different teachings of the dissenters in order to carry out God's economy. Now, Roman numeral 3 says the degradation and apostasy of the church took place at the end of the Apostle Paul's ministry. A says all the believers in Asia turned away from Paul's ministry, including Phygelus and Hermogenes. B says... Hymenaeus and Philetus said that the resurrection had already taken place. That is, that there would be no resurrection. This is a serious heresy that denies the divine power in life. Now, without resurrection, we don't have anything in God's economy. Uh, we have a hymn in our hymnal. I believe Charles Wesley wrote it. It's very inspiring. As Christ the Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. He has met his people's need, hallelujah. But there's not a lot of content there. But what we need to realize is that firstly, according to Colossians 1.18, that Christ as the firstborn from the dead in resurrection, he's the head of the body. So in resurrection, he was brought forth as the head of the body. In 1 Peter 1.3, it says that we were regenerated through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from among the dead. So in God's eyes, when we were born again was when Christ was resurrected. And we became the members of Christ's body. So because of resurrection, you have Christ as the head of the body. And you have, you have the body of Christ. You have the members of the body. Also, in 1 Corinthians 15.45b, it says, In resurrection, Christ as the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, the life-giving spirit is the content of the body. The life-giving spirit is the reality of the body. The life-giving spirit is the essence of the body. So if there's no resurrection, there's no head of the body. There's no resurrection. There's no body of the head. There's no body of Christ. If there's no resurrection, there's no life-giving spirit as the essence of the body, as the reality of the body. So without resurrection, you don't have the head, you don't have the body, and you don't have the reality of the body. You have zero. You have zero. But praise the Lord for Christ's resurrection. Because of Christ's resurrection, he's our head. We are his members. And we are enjoying him as the life-giving spirit just the reality of the body. Now C says, Demas, a co-worker of the Apostle Paul, loved the present age and abandoned Paul. Now that, um, you 
you know, that would be, that would be, humanly speaking, that would be discouraging if you had a close coworker and uh, he abandoned you. He abandoned you because he loved the present age. Well, this is what Demas did. This is what Demas did. And, um, um, and saints, I would like to say this again. I, I, I believe I said this in the last session. Um, you know, we, we had a turmoil in 1980, around 1988. And there were some prominent uh, people among us who turned away from the Lord's recovery, began to teach differently. And it was a shock to me. Because all of us looked up to these brothers. It was a real shock to me. And I said, how could these brothers do this? You know, it just, it just shocked me. Uh, you know, one day before a meeting, uh, Brother Benson Phillips and I, we were with Brother Lee, and, and, and Brother Lee said, Ed, I want, I want to let you know what's going on. And then he shared with me what was happening in this turmoil. And I was shocked. I said, how could, how could these brothers rebel like this, turn against the Lord's recovery? And, um, and so one of these co-workers was in a meeting uh, one time. It was a meeting of elders and co-workers after a conference meeting. And this, this younger brother was with one of these brothers that rebelled, a younger brother. And he spoke very disrespectfully to Brother Lee. I could never forget that. And he said, Brother Lee, you used to speak very highly of this brother, but now it's different. It's different. And Brother Lee just said one thing I could never forget. He said, he said, people change. He said, look at Demas. Look at Demas. People change. People change. Well, we don't want to change, Right? We want to be controlled by the God-given revelation of God's economy. And we will not change. We will not change. And uh, we don't take this way because of any person, nor should we leave this way because of any person, because we are controlled by the vision of God's economy, of God's economy. Now, Dean says, Alexander the coppersmith did many evil things to the apostle, and greatly opposed the apostles' word. He says, at the apostles' first defense, no one was with him to support him, but all abandoned him. But verse 17 says, but the Lord stood with me and empowered me, that through me the proclamation of the gospel might be fully accomplished. Now Roman numeral 4 says, even during a period of decline, a downward trend when most of God's people are carried away, there is always a remnant who remains faithful. We need to pray, Lord, make me a part of that remnant. By your mercy, I want to remain faithful. I want to remain faithful. So in 1 Kings 19, Elijah, uh, Jezebel wanted to kill Elijah. So Elijah was running away from Jezebel. And we'll see this in the last session. Elijah hid himself in a cave, and the Lord said, said to Elijah, what are you doing here, Elijah? And so Elijah said to him, he said, I've been very jealous for Jehovah, the God of hosts, 
For the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Well, the Lord spoke to, uh, to Elijah and said, Elijah, you're not the only one left. I have reserved for myself 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Isn't that wonderful? He re- Saints, we need to pray, reserve me for yourself, Lord. Reserve me for yourself. I like to be a part of that remnant. In the book of Ezra, uh, the children of Israel came back from Babylon to rebuild the temple. They were a remnant of people. In Nehemiah, uh, it, it uses the word remnant there, uh, who again came back from Babylon to build the wall and to build the city. In Haggai 1.14, it says, Jehovah stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and did work in the house of Jehovah of hosts, their God. So, uh, the Lord's recovery begins with our stirred up spirit, with our exercised spirit. Now under this, A says, Onesiphorus was an overcomer who resisted the general trend and stood against the downward current to refresh the Lord's ambassador in spirit, soul, and body, not being ashamed of the apostles' imprisonment on behalf of the Lord's commission. B says, Timothy was one who was fully perfected and equipped to minister the word of God, not only in caring for a local church, but also in confronting the worsening decline of the church. He was like soul with the Apostle Paul to genuinely care for the church with all the saints and remind them of Paul's ways which are in Christ. Now in Philippians 2, uh, 19 through 22, Paul said, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly. And then he says, for I have no one like soul who will genuinely care for what concerns you. That's kind of in one sense, it's a tragedy. The only one Paul had like soul was Timothy, a younger brother. And the fact that he was like soul with Paul, he says, "All, all seek their own things not the things of Christ Jesus. What are the things of Christ Jesus here? The things of Christ Jesus are the things concerning the church with all the saints. The things concerning the church with all the saints. Now in 1 Timothy 1, 16, Paul said that he was a pattern to the believers. In 1 Timothy 4, 12, he said, he told Timothy, be a pattern to the believers. He, he said, I'm a pattern to the believers. I want you to be a pattern to the believers. Be a pattern in word, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. I remember when I first read this, I prayed over this uh, as a young person. And you can, Brother David, you should pray over this verse, 1 Timothy 4.12. And you should pray, Lord, make me a pattern in word. I want my word uh, to be healthy words. I want my conduct to be a living out of Christ. 
I want to be a pattern in loving you and in loving the brothers in the church. I want to be a pattern in faith, in my organic union with you. I want to be a pattern in purity. In all my contact with the saints, I want it to be in purity. In other words, the only goal I have in contacting the saints is to minister Christ to them so that they would grow in the Lord. Now, C says Luke was the beloved physician, a faithful companion of Paul until Paul's martyrdom. What a title this is, Luke, the beloved physician. I like this. To Paul, he was the beloved physician. D says Titus walked in the same spirit and in the same steps as Paul to care for the churches. We need to be the same way. All these verses tell us this. E says... Mark was useful to Paul for the ministry. Now, if you go back to Acts 15, Acts 14, Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas went out preaching the gospel and raising up churches. And as they were doing this, Mark left them. Mark left them. Uh, for some reason, Mark just couldn't, couldn't take it. And so he left them. So... Um, Paul said to Barnabas, he said, he said, Barnabas, I would like to go back and see the saints, the brothers and sisters that we raised up and see how the churches are doing. And Barnabas wanted to take Mark with him. Well, Mark was Barnabas' cousin. Mark was Barnabas' cousin. If you read the end of Acts 15, you could see this. And, uh, Paul didn't agree. He didn't agree to take Barnabas. And uh, so Barnabas separated from Paul. But Paul was commended by the brothers to go out and visit the churches. Now, from that point, you don't see Barnabas' name in the record in the book of Acts, which is very telling, very telling. But Mark, but Mark became useful at the end of Paul's life, in 2 Timothy 4.11, he says, Luke alone is with me. Take Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for the ministry. Isn't that wonderful? So Mark had a turn. He became useful to Paul for the ministry. You know, the book of Mark, Mark was Peter's spiritual child, and probably the book of Mark was dictated to Mark by Peter. To Mark by Peter. That's why there's one verse in there where uh, at the tomb, the, uh, the angel said to, said to the sisters there, uh, go tell my disciples and Peter. That's the only book has those two words in it, and Peter, and Peter. Because Peter never forgot that. Peter had denied the Lord three times, but the Lord said, make sure and tell Peter that I want to see him. I want to see him. So that must have encouraged Peter. Now, we come to Roman numeral 5. 2 Timothy is a book written for inoculators, those who would inoculate others against the decline of the church. Now, verse 1 of 2 Timothy 2 says, You therefore, my child, be empowered in the grace which is in Christ Jesus. Now, grace is God in Christ as the Spirit 
for our enjoyment. So where do we get empowered from? We get empowered when we enjoy the Lord, right? You have to enjoy the Lord. You will be empowered uh, to be an inoculator, not just to get inoculated, but to be an inoculator. We all need to pray, Lord, make me an inoculator. Make me an inoculator. Now, I believe there's five items of what an inoculator is. We'll see this. An inoculator is a teacher. An inoculator is a soldier. An inoculator is an athlete. An inoculator is a farmer. And an inoculator is a carpenter. A carpenter. These five items. We'll see this as we go through this. Okay, A says... The inoculator is a teacher. And 2 Timothy 2.2 says, The things which you have heard from me through many witnesses, these commit to faithful men who will be competent to teach others also. Ephesians 3.2 says, If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. Now the Greek word for stewardship there is the same as the Greek word for economy. It's oikonomia. If indeed you have heard of the oikonomia of God, which was given to me for you. When God's economy is entrusted to us, it becomes our stewardship. So the stewardship of the grace of God, that's the stewardship of the enjoyment of God. And saints, I always like this. Our motivation for enjoying the Lord is that we have to enjoy the Lord for others. How are you going to serve with the young people if you don't enjoy the Lord first. Can you imagine going in to serve the junior hires and you didn't enjoy the Lord first? Oh my goodness. That would be terrible. Listen, to, to serve with the junior hires, you have to be an overcomer. You know, the, the junior hires aren't sitting there going, oh, Brother Ed, give us more of the word. You know, they're, they're, they're going like this and laughing and fooling around and you have to really pray for them. And so, saints, we enjoy the Lord. It's to me for you. To me. Our spiritual service starts out with to me. The stewardship of the grace of God is to me. So every day, we need to enjoy the Lord first. And then that to me doesn't stop there. It's not just to me so I can be spiritual. It's to me for you. I enjoy the Lord for the sake of others, for the sake of others. Now, one says, if someone in a local church has a deposit of the Lord's healthy words, he should train the faithful ones that they too may have a good deposit from the Lord and be competent to teach others. Two says, we must shepherd the saints with the teaching of God's economy. I don't know if you have this concept, but according to Ephesians 4, 11, it says he, get, he himself gave some as apostles, as prophets, as evangelists, and as shepherds and teachers. According to this verse, shepherds and teachers are one category of person. A shepherd is a teacher. A teacher is a shepherd. And so we have to shepherd the saints with the teaching of God's economy. With the teaching of God's economy. Now, A says, we should shepherd people by dispensing the divine life 
the divine life and the humanity of Jesus to cherish them and by teaching them the divine truths and the divinity of Christ to nourish them. So we need to cherish people. We need to nourish people. People come, everyone among us needs to be cherished. I need to be cherished and I need to be nourished. You know, my youngest boy, when he was younger, uh, he would try to cherish me. He didn't know how to cherish me, but he would try to cherish me and he'd say, here, Dad, have a Coca-Cola. That was his way of cherishing me. He was a little boy. Here, Dad, have a Coca-Cola. And my wife would say, get that Coke away from your dad. Get that Coke away from your dad. <laughs> but he wanted to cherish me. He wanted to cherish me. And, uh, you know, forgive me, I know a lot of you are new here. And the reason why I mention Brother Lee's name at times is because I serve with Brother Lee a lot. You know what I mean? So, because I serve with him a lot, um, I have I had a lot of experiences with him, so I can't avoid talk, talking about him sometimes. Well, he, Brother Lee was uh, was uh, he was near departing to be with the Lord. There was a sign on his door that said, "No one allowed. No one is allowed to come in." And a group of us were meeting with him on a regular basis, but it came to a point where he just couldn't. You know, his illness was so bad, uh, he couldn't see anybody. So I prayed that morning, and I said, Lord, I would really like to see Brother Lee again, despite that sign. So I went into Andrew's office, Andrew Yu's office. I said, Andrew, uh, I told Andrew that I would really like to see Brother Lee. He said, just go, Ed. Forget about that sign. Just go. I said, I said Andrew, can I take Carrie with me, Carrie Robichaud? Uh, another brother that I know. He said, yeah, take Carrie. Take Carrie with you. So Carrie and I went over, and we knocked on the door, and, and you're not supposed to knock on the door. You know the sign is there. We knocked on the door. And this brother who was taking care of our brother, he opened the door, and this was Tom Dvorak. If you know Tom, he's a dear, dear brother. He opened the door. He was so happy to see us. He said, brothers, come in, come in. So we came in, and, and Brother Lee was very ill. He was, he was sitting there like this. You know, he had an IV in his arm. And he looked up, and he said, what do you brothers want? You know, because we always wanted something when we went to You know, he said, what do you brothers want? And so I said, I said, Brother Lee, we don't want anything. We just love you, and we miss you. We love you, and we miss you. And so uh, we, uh, Carrie told him about what he was working on, affirmation and critique. I shared something with him about how the coworkers were starting to blend together and become one. He said, oh, I'm so happy. I'm so happy. And uh, as we were leaving, uh, Brother Lee looked up at us and he said, he said this to us. He said, brothers, Brother Lee had this dream. I won't get in, into the whole. You can read it in the God Man Living, the book God Man Living. And he had this dream. I won't recount the whole dream, but part of the dream when he was being, when he was captured by the Japanese in World War II, 
a part of the dream was he saw this broad highway with the sun rising, with the sun rising and shining on this broad highway. And he interpreted that as being that his ministry would continue until the Lord came back as the sun rising from on high. And so uh, we, we fellowship with that, that with him a few weeks earlier. And so brother, he looked up at us. His eyes were shining. He said, brothers, I'm still in the dream. I'm still in the dream. Can you imagine that? Carrie and I were just in tears. I'm still in the dream. So he was governed by that dream, the dream of God's economy. Now B says, shepherding the flock of God by declaring to them all the counsel of God, the economy of God, protects the church from the destroyers of God's building, mingles them with a trying God as grace, and binds them together in oneness. In oneness. Zechariah 11, 17. 11, 7 says, I shepherded the flock with two staffs. One was called favor, and the other was called bonds. Favor is grace. Bonds is to be bound in oneness. So we shepherd people with the grace of Christ, and we bind them together in oneness. We bind them together in oneness. In Ezekiel 34:25, the Lord says, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish evil beasts from the land. These evil beasts signify people, people that are the destroyers of God's economy. He said, I will banish evil beasts from the land so that they will dwell securely in the wilderness. Listen to this, and sleep in the woods. Listen, when you're in a healthy church life, you can sleep in the woods. You can sleep in the woods. You feel so safe and so secure that you can sleep in the woods. You know, I grew up in the city, and my wife wanted to take me camping. And so we went out, and, you know, we erected a tent, and I didn't sleep all night. I heard, you know, I don't know what I heard, you know. I thought it was a bear. It was probably a chipmunk. You know what I mean? Just, you know, and I couldn't sleep all night. Uh, But when you're in a healthy church life, you can sleep in the woods. You can even sleep in the woods with no problem. Now, three says, the inoculating teacher as a good minister of Christ Jesus is nourished with the words of the faith and exercises his spirit to live Christ in his daily life for the church life. Then B says, the inoculator is a soldier. Paul said to Timothy, suffer evil with me as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier entangles himself with the affairs of this life that he may please the one who enlisted us. Well, the one who enlisted us is the triune God. And we want to please him. We want to be a good soldier. One says, the apostle considered their ministry a warfare for Christ, just as the priestly service was considered a military service, a warfare. So if you look in Numbers 4, It talks about carrying out the service to do the work in the tent of meeting. The word service there in the Hebrew means military service. Military service. Okay, that's B. Now, under B, 
Okay, that's one. Be one. Now we come to two. The Lord's ministry is the sounding of the trumpet for the army to go to war. To war the good warfare is to war against teachings that differ from the teaching of God's economy according to the apostles' ministry. Three says to fight a good fight for the Lord's interests on the earth, we must clear away all earthly entanglements and lay hold on the eternal life, not trusting in our human life. And four says we must fight the battle against death, the last enemy of God, by being full of life to reign in life. This is part of our Nazarite vow. We want to be Nazarites who are separated from natural affection, separated from earthly enjoyment, separated from rebellion, and separated from death. So when we're separated from death, that means we need to be full of life, full of anti-death, which is life, so that we can reign in life. And to reign in life means that we reign in life over Satan, sin, and death. Okay, now, now we come to C. No, we come to five, I'm sorry. Our will must be subdued and resurrected by Christ to be like the Tower of David, the armory for spiritual warfare. Then C says, the inoculator is an athlete. Paul says, if anyone contends in the games, he is not crowned unless he contends lawfully. One says, we must run the Christian race until we finish our course, fully accomplishing our ministry in the unique ministry of God's economy so that we may receive Christ as our prize. Two says, we must subdue our body and make it a conquered captive to serve us as a slave for the fulfilling of our holy purpose, not by our own effort, but by the Spirit. Three says, we must live the normal church life by pursuing Christ as righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. D says, the inoculator is a farmer. The laboring farmer must be the first to partake of the fruit. First to partake of the fruit. In 1 Corinthians 3, 6, Paul says, I, plant, I planted upon was watered, but God caused the growth. Well, you know, where, I, where I'm from, Anaheim, Anaheim, if, if, if you didn't have sprinklers in Anaheim, it would be a total desert a total desert. But Anaheim is full of sprinklers. And because it's full of sprinklers, it's very, it can be very green, very green. Like my yard, it has beautiful flowers in it. But if it wasn't for the sprinklers, it wouldn't have those flowers. When you come to the meetings, there are sprinklers in the meetings. Sprinklers. A brother or sister stands up and testifies, and it's just like a sprinkler, like this sprinkles us with the spirit as the life-giving water. You might think, oh, I can't sprinkle water the way Reggie Favors can. And Reggie Favors stands up just like a big sprinkler. <laughs> My sprinkler just like, you know, you see some sprinklers, they just go like this. They just, this one. But that's okay. You sprinkle the person next to you. You still are a sprinkler. 
Now, 2 Corinthians 6.1 says we need to work together with him. We are his co-workers. This, is, this means we work together with God by a life that is all sufficient and all mature. We have a life that's able to fit all situations. We have a life that's able to endure any kind of treatment, to accept any kind of environment, to work in any kind of condition, and to take any kind of opportunity for the carrying out of the ministry. Okay, now under one we have A, the word of God as a grain of wheat dispenses God as life into us to nourish us. It is also a fire and a hammer to purify us and break down our self, our natural life, our flesh, and our concepts. B says God has sent forth his word as rain and snow. When you see the rain in London, you need to say praise the Lord. This is a type of the word of God. He sends forth his word as rain and snow to water his people in order to sanctify them, transform them, and conform them to his image that the body may be built up. So in these verses, the Lord says, for just as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, uh, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth It will not return to me vainly, but it will accomplish what I delight in, and it will prosper in the matter to which I have sent it. So two says in our contact with the saints, saints, we should have just one motive to minister Christ to them that they might grow in the Lord. Finally, we have E, the inoculator is a workman. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God and unashamed workman cutting straight the word of the truth. One says to cut straight the word of the truth means to unfold the word of God in its various parts rightly and straightly without distortion as in carpentry. Two says there is the need of the word of the truth rightly unfolded to enlighten the darkened people, inoculate against the poison, swallow up the death, and bring the distracted back to the proper track. So Psalm 119, verse 130, says, The opening of your words gives light. I like this. Imparting understanding doesn't say to the complicated. It says imparting understanding to the simple. We need to be the simple ones. So when God's word is opened or unfolded to us, It gives us light shining inwardly over our heart and our spirit to impart wisdom and revelation to us. Saints, we all need to pray, uh, Lord, make me an inoculator. Make me an inoculator. And pray, just pray short prayers over these items. These items are God's will for us. If you pray God's will back to him, he will answer your prayer. He will answer your prayer. Okay, now, um, I didn't intend on going this long. I wanted to stop a long time ago. But anyway, we still have time for testimonies. So let's pray with our neighbor, and then the brothers will tell us what to do from here.